Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are talking about the Gospels. This is Gospels part 122. We are still in the midst of the Last Supper between Jesus and his disciples. Uh, This Passover Seder that is going on. And last week we saw where Jesus was continuing these parallels between the imagery that traditional... Judaism and the Passover Seder already has concerning the exodus and liberation from Egypt, and he is adding the imagery of his pending, impending uh, suffering, death, and resurrection to add to that Seder um, as imagery. He, They're taking a cup, and he's saying, this is going to be my blood of the covenant, similar to the blood of the Passover, which was spread over the top of the the doorway, but it's this new covenant that he's ushering whenever the Torah is going to be written on our minds and hearts whenever he comes again to redeem all of creation and humanity. Uh, And then he says that he's not going to drink of it again until that day is established in his Father's kingdom. So it's really interesting to see that he's alluding to that future day when he will come as a conquering king. Um, We move on from there where very it's frustrating but we have to give the disciples a break when we like as much as we can (laughs) a a dispute rose among them about who was the greatest in the midst of this very convicting and heavy imagery that jesus is painting on his last night and classic jesus responding with grace and sympathy and gentleness just reaffirms them reassures them like continue to do what you've been doing all this time staying with me, prioritizing my attributes with this gospel of a new king and a new kingdom. And if you continue in that, there's going to be a day where you're going to be assigned thrones to be able to judge the 12 tribes of Israel in that future kingdom. So it turns out to be a encouraging bit for the disciples rather than a scolding from Jesus. And then we ended the episode with Jesus foretelling that all of his disciples are going to fall away. And specifically, there's details about Simon Peter going to forsake Jesus three times and classic Peter being the chutzpah dude with (laughs) having all of the bravery. doesn't think it's going to happen, but little does he know that uh, he's not immune to this falling away and fear of death. Yeah. like every human being would be if they were in this situation concerning Jesus's persecution and death. Yeah, yeah, that's really good stuff. And the way you said something really, it really got me. I liked it a lot. So when we were, this is going back to, you know, talking about the cup and, and relating it to his blood. What is, what was the blood over the doorpost in the original Exodus? What was that saving them from, Samuel? Uh, it was the angel of death, right? Yeah. His blood, er, that blood saved them from death. And so you made that connection in a similar way. Jesus's blood ultimately 
is saving us from death. It's opening the way back to life. I'd love that. That's beautiful. And then, of course, it also works as like the, I don't know, the seal of the covenant or whatever you want to call it, that new covenant. But anyway, that was great. You like tweaked a little something in my brain, made me happy already. (laughs) So, yeah. All right. So good summary, review, whatever. Let's, uh, the next part here, we're looking at Luke chapter 22, verses 35 to 38. This is kind of a weird little section. It seems like a weird add-on to where we were, and it doesn't really do a lot for where we're going or whatever, but let's read it, and we'll talk about it and see what we got. And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, Nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. (laughs) And he said to them, it is enough. Okay, it's a confusing little bit. And I don't know that we're going to unconfuse it, but we're at least going to talk about it. So, so, uh, as you mentioned, Jesus had warned them. They were going to fall away. But he also seemed to be suggesting that they were going to return, okay? This wasn't going to be fatal. It was just going to be a bad moment, if you will, right? Now, he wants to let them know that their lives, everything about their daily lives, it was going to change dramatically. So he begins by reminding them of when he had sent them out before, and, and they were on their own. They were without him when he sent them out. He had specifically instructed them at that time to take nothing. And and if you look at it, it, uh, at one point he sends out the 12. Just as a point of reference, you can look at Matthew chapter 10, verses 9 to 14, Mark chapter 6, verses 8 to 11, Luke chapter 9, verses 3 and 4. But there was also another time when he sent out the 70 or 72, depending on your translation, whatever. That was in Luke chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. So, so... He had done that before, but now Jesus asks, okay, when I did that, what what do they remember needing or wanting during that time? And, I mean, it was an obvious question. It was an easy question, and they answered, well, nothing. We didn't need anything. It was great. Well, now they're going to be on their own again, except now it's it's more permanently. And I'm, I'm talking about his physical presence, okay? I, I know we could talk about other things, but he's not going to be with them anymore. And Jesus' instructions this time are very, very different. He's now saying, hey, if you got a money bag, you got to keep it with you. Uh, if you've got a, a knapsack, you got to keep that with you. And, and so what are we talking about here with a knapsack? It's maybe, uh, some people call it a, a beggar's bag, or a uh, today I think I've heard the term bug out bag, you know, stuff like that. It's the, the, the most basic stuff that you need for survival kind of thing, whatever. But then he adds, as if that wasn't surprising enough, he adds something even more. If you don't have a sword, 
you know what? You ought to sell even your own clothing off your back just to get one. What? That? What? That's crazy. So, so now, and and you can see if we can kind of think about all the parables that we've talked about most recently in those stories, you can actually see in this more of that general idea that you know what they they need to be ready. They need to be prepared. They need to be watching. They need to be awake, even to the point of being ready to defend themselves. Wow, this, this is such a different story from everything that we've seen these past few years. It's, it's going to be quite a departure from, I would say, what they've grown accustomed to, hanging around with him. Now, we're going to talk more about the swords here in a moment, but I want to address some other things first. So Jesus is warning them, you know, again, of what is coming, and he references Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12. Now, he is, again, pointing to the suffering servant, right? So in Isaiah, you've got this idea of the servant of the Lord. That's a big section of Isaiah. And then you also have and and it depends on whether you thought they were the same person or not, but we think they are now, you see him becoming this suffering servant. Okay, so in and around Isaiah 53, you see that. Jesus sees himself as the servant of the Lord and as this suffering servant. He is telling them that those scriptures, those prophecies from Isaiah are being fulfilled in him right before their very eyes. And so, if that's true, if Jesus is a transgressor, or he's being seen as a transgressor, as it's prophesied, well, then they are going to be seen that way as well. It's kind of a guilt by association kind of a thing, right? Just, I mean, it just kind of makes sense. Now, the weird thing is that they, they appear, I don't know, a bit dull-minded, you know, as Jesus is talking about this, or or maybe that's unfair. Maybe they just are focusing on one particular bit, but they get to the end of it. Jesus is saying this really important stuff, and their response is, hey, look, we've got two swords. <laughs> now, I don't know where they came from. I don't know if they, like, brought them with them, or when they said that this room was furnished, that it had a couple swords hanging on the wall. <laughs> I don't know what the story was behind that, but They say, look, we've got two swords. And in response to that, Jesus says, it is enough. And so there's this question, what does he mean, Samuel? What what does he mean by saying they need to have swords? What does he mean by saying it's enough? I mean, first of all, was Jesus, was this like a call to arms? That doesn't seem to fit the story, but... What then is he saying? Was Jesus saying that two swords would be sufficient for all that they were going to face? I mean, there were, let's just say, you know, we don't, again, we don't know exactly who's in the room, but let's just say it's the 12. Is two swords enough for 12 people? Right? I mean, if he really meant for the swords to be for defense, I mean, you might think 12 would be a better number. I mean, the point is, two doesn't really sound like enough. 
And Jesus is saying, it is enough. What's going on? So many have looked at this, and they've thought that Jesus, okay, he's not really saying that that two swords is enough, like the number two. But, but in fact, they think he wasn't even really talking about the swords. They think that he was saying, look, I've, I've told you what I wanted to tell you. You guys are focusing in on the sword part, and you're not really catching my drift. And so what he's really saying is, you know what, this is enough talk. Or we've talked about this enough, or it's enough of that kind of talk, or whatever. Basically, he's he's ending the conversation. And, I mean, you know, there's some, I think there's some merit to that, because think about where we're at in the story. This is, I mean, these are the final hours. Time was short. And Jesus was making statements, but it appears he's making statements and not always explaining things because he's running out of time. And and we've saw we've seen that a lot in earlier, you know, Jesus would talk about things or he would tell parables or he would do this or do that and later they would come behind going, "Hey, uh, what did you really mean when you said that?" And it, it, they're not going to have this opportunity anymore. That there's just no time left. And so I don't know. It, it's difficult to say. He knew this much I think we can say. He knew that they would have help to understand a whole bunch more later when the Holy Spirit came. And so he was ready to kind of just move along, you know, I mean, you could think of it this way. Samuel, he has an appointment to keep. He's going to be late for a very important date. Yeah, exactly. And it's not a good appointment. This is when the actual betrayal is going to happen. But you you just kind of see in this whole story, Jesus is laying out some truths for them, and they're not totally getting them, and, and because it's at the end, he doesn't seem to be providing all of the explanation that we might think they need or want or whatever. And so, you know, again, I think the the most important bit of what we see here is that there's going to be this really, really big life change for them and that they really do need to be watchful and prepared, even to the point of looking out for their own defense and things of that nature, which, you know, it's a difficulty. A lot of people look at the Bible as a whole and they think, you know what, we just need to be completely passive. And there's a lot of really, really good argument for that, but there's also a lot of really good argument for, well, that that's like the overriding mindset, but it's not the end of the story. And so defense occasionally does enter into the picture. I mean, let's say at least defense enters into the picture, and we see an example of that right here. So anyway, I don't know. You can do what you want with it, but there's that's all I got on that, Samuel. Yeah, I I don't have a whole lot uh, concerning the sword aspect of this part of the text, but I do like this detail that you brought to our attention about the Jesus saying about the disciples needing to prepare their own bug out bag, so to speak, after he's gone. Right. Um, I, I I think in some ways that's imagery to exile um yeah and what i mean by that is that if we look back in the torah when 
God's presence was dwelling, let's say, with the people in the land, like in the Holy of Holies, in either the tabernacle or the first temple, like there was blessings and associated gifts with that presence being with the nation, like the, the land was fruitful and bountiful and right. they had everything that they needed and they were provided for but whenever they fell away uh, and God's presence had to go away because of that sin and disobedience being present there was struggle there that bounty and that overflowing of abundance wasn't present and so here in the same way Jesus is like God's presence tabernacled in human flesh and within at least within his disciples there was bounty of knowledge and wisdom and insights on the coming kingdom but since the whole nation itself did not take up the call of Jesus's gospel of repenting so that the kingdom could come that presence of God had to go away again right um, and and it just goes to show you like even in Torah times, there were people who were faithful to God in Torah that still had to experience the consequences of exile because of a nationwide problem. And so here with Jesus' 12 disciples, you could say that they were the faithful ones, but they still had to experience God leaving once again because of you know the entirety of the people not... Yeah. taking Jesus's message to heart. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that is a really cool viewpoint, Samuel. Glad you brought that up. That is just good. And I'm going to leave it just the way you said it. That's neat. All right, well, okay, so, I, I mean, you know, people can't actually see all of my original notes and all that kind of stuff, but this this is an, this is a, we're marking a very interesting point right here, Samuel, where not only are we going on to a new section of study, a new section of the Gospels, uh, we're actually going to enter into, and I don't know what it is exactly, we're going to do like four or five chapters of John. Oh, boy. Crazy. <laughs> so all I can say is buckle up, because it's yeah. going to get good. Yeah. yeah. But now remember, just going into this, remember that from John's perspective, we're looking at a Last Supper that's not necessarily a Passover Seder, and and we've been talking a lot here and there about the synoptics that we're looking at everything as a Passover Seder. So kind of keep that in the back of your mind, just that it's different, and I don't know how much that's going to be relevant here, but anyway, just remember. Uh, we're going to move now to John chapter 13, and we're going to look first at verses 31 and 32. It says this, When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Welcome to John. (laughs) Did he say him enough? (laughs) Yeah, it's, yeah. And John, he just has such a strange way. But then again, it's supposed to be you know, a Jesus quote. So maybe Jesus talked this way, but I don't know. It seems like he talks this way a lot more in John than he does in the other Gospels. So I'm thinking it's John that's doing this, but whatever. So I, if just to get our heads in the right place, when it says, when he had gone out, 
uh, in John, we're talking about Judas. When Judas, you know, Jesus has had his little interaction, and, and, Jesus, and he was like, hey, do what you're going to do quickly, whatever. Judas is now leaving. So when Judas had gone out, so we're somewhere in between that time, Judas leaving, and the rest of them actually finishing the meal and going out to the Mount of Olives, okay? It's a little loosey-goosey in there. We don't know exactly where, but that's, that's kind of the time frame. And this, it actually is kind of referred to as Jesus's farewell discourse. At least that's one phrase I've heard put on it. And it, it covers, uh, I'm pretty sure it's more than four chapters of John. I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot. This section of John's gospel follows, and this, this is so interesting, things that you would never know or see. It follows the format and conventions of a typical farewell address, and it appears to be quite intentional. And so if you were a first century reader, and most especially a Jewish reader, when you saw this section in John's gospel, it actually would have stood out to you a little bit. It would have been familiar and, in fact, kind of impactful because the way John has laid it out, it follows a cultural, conventional norm. So I thought that was kind of interesting. We're not going to see it ourselves to now today, right? But if we wanted to take the time to go back and understand how a farewell address worked and all this, we may mention a point here or there to sort of help you relate to it. But for them, it would have been very noticeable. And then something else weird about what he says. So... um At the end of it, okay, I was reading ESV, and the last verse says, if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify in himself, and glorify him at once, okay? Now, when you hear that phrase, at once, it could mean something along along the lines of at the same time, or it could mean something along the lines of immediately, right? Slightly different versions there. And I don't know, you could probably see how either one might work here, but it could also mean, and this is the weird part, if, I can't remember exactly how this worked, but but another potential meaning for the underlying Greek is upright or just. And why I bring that up is that a lot of times when we're looking at the Greek in the New Testament, we try to make some connection back to, well, what would that have been in the Hebrew? We use the Septuagint as kind of a map for that. And if, if we were to look at the Greek under here and say, oh yeah, upright and just actually fits a little bit, um, it actually makes more sense when we connect it back to the Hebrew. And, and, and it would read something along the lines of, uh, also glorify him in himself, and he glorifies him in justice or in uprightness or, or something like that. It, it is God's righteousness or whatever. So it's very interesting, uh, but just wanted to point that out because that phrase, it's odd in itself, but there's actually way more underneath the surface. Also, there's a chance here there's a, a Hebrew euphemism for martyrdom, and it had to do with sanctifying the name. And so this idea of, of glorifying him in justice or glorifying him in righteousness or, righteousness or in uprightness or whatever, 
Some scholars have looked at this and said, well, actually, he may be using a, a, a euphemism for martyrdom. Now, is it really? I don't know. Does it really matter? Uh, well, I don't know. It's certainly not obvious, but it's, I don't know, it's an interesting connection. But what I'd like to do is actually take the entire section here, and I'd just like to bring it down into some more modern, plain English. Because, again, when you read John's, it sounds a little, a little, a little strange. So I would say it this way. The time has come, and God is going to glorify the Son of Man. Now, God himself will be glorified at the same time. Behold, the Son of Man glorifies God, and God glorifies the Son of Man. And glorifying him is God's righteousness. And what I mean by that is to say that God is being true to himself. He's being true to his own word, to his own ways. It is God's righteousness. So, whether you like that translation or not, I don't know. doesn't really matter. It's not like you're going to be able to buy the book or anything. So, there, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> not yet, anyway. Yeah, yeah. I don't think there's ever going to be a Paul's English version or, <laughs> you know, something like that. It's not going to happen. P-E-V. So it's got a that's, ring to it. That's right. The PEV. Go ahead. What do you got on this one, Samuel? I don't. I think you you helped us out with the interpolation. Okay. Well, let's keep going, because at some point you are going to need to help me. So here we go. <laughs> uh, John chapter 13, verse 33 says this. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Wow. When he said that to the Jews, it didn't seem like it was a good thing. So what's going on here? Well, first of all, let's take note. He calls them little children. Now, I don't know. You could think that's a cut down, but it's not. This was a, it was, I would say, a common form of speech between a teacher and his disciples. He was the father and they were his sons or they were his children or that kind of stuff. He calls them little children. So it's a, it's a term of endearment. And you might also think, remember when we talked about Jesus in some of his teachings, he, he, would, he would refer to the little ones. And we talked about how, well, on on one hand, it does appear that he's actually referring to small humans, young humans, children. But on the other hand, he seems to be referring to people who purposely, intentionally have lowered themselves, if you will, or maybe a better way to say it is they've elevated others. They have, they have truly taken on humility, and they become like little ones, like children. So all of that, I think, is at play here. Little children. And, and you know, humility is a vital part of walking in his image. So anyway, there's that little term of endearment there. And then Jesus states again that he's going away soon. And now, you know, again, we know what's coming in the story. It's only a matter of hours now. But here's a little spoiler alert. He's also going to be around for, call it, 40 days after his resurrection. So that's a big deal. And then 
he will ascend. So, you know, then he's really, really going away, at least in the physical sense. Now, earlier, Jesus had told the chief priests and the Pharisees, and in John's lingo, the Jews, and that would be the Judean leaders, okay? He had said to them, where I am going, you cannot come. And you can go look at John chapter 7, verse 34, John chapter 8, verse 21. They wondered at that time, they were like, well, you know, what's he saying? Is he going to leave the land of Israel? Is he going out into the dispersion? Uh, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, or uh, what's he going to do? Kill himself? You know, we can't follow him there. But, you know, whatever. They were trying to figure out what he was talking about. But now he says the same thing to his disciples. And hopefully they didn't wonder quite as poorly as the Jewish leaders did, right? Hopefully they imagined something a little more heavenly, like he's going to go you know, to be with his Father in heaven kind of stuff. That's why they can't follow, whatever. But this is supposed to be making things really clear for the disciples. Not only is he going to die, he is going away. Their entire lives, their entire being, if you will, had become following him. And, and, and they weren't going to be able to follow him anymore. This is a super big life change. And many, think about it, Samuel, think about all those journey parables. What was the idea? There was someone, he was like the master or a king or something, and he had to go away. And he was leaving everyone else behind without direct supervision. And the question was whether they were going to fulfill their master's desires or their own. Are they going to elevate their master's will above their own or the opposite? And so this has all got to kind of be playing in their heads because he's, and, and also think about the fact that what's the, what's the overriding image that everybody had? Well, the Messiah is coming, conquering king. He's going to rule from Jerusalem. It's going to be great. And he's telling them, uh, no, actually, I'm going to suffer. And not just suffer, I'm going to suffer and die. Oh, and by the way, in case you're thinking that that's somehow going to lead to me, you know, immediately ruling here in Jerusalem, it's not. I'm going away. I'm, I'm going to be gone. You're going to be on your own, right? So this, they're very short verses, but there's a lot that's being stated here, and, and you just have to wonder how much are they really hearing, what are they you know, what's it? Re- what's really going on in their head? So anyway, there's that little bit, Samuel. Anything? Not really, other than maybe just a contextual question. I know last week at the end of our time together in the text, I think it, it was either, maybe it was in Matthew or Luke, it said that they had gone to the Mount of Olives um, and sung a hymn after the the Passover Seder. They but sung here, a hymn and then went out, yep. Yeah, yeah, I got the order wrong. But um, yeah. here in John, since we've started, it seems like this is happening right after Judas walks out. So are we supposed to right. be picturing this still in the room that they are in before they go out? Or, I mean, I guess there's no way of really knowing truly, but I guess I'm just trying to get a mental picture of right where they are physically while these words are being spoken. Yeah, yeah, and I, yeah, I guess we can't be 100%, but I think sort of the obvious 
answer is, yeah, they're all still sitting around the table talking. Okay. And so, I, yeah, I don't know if you remember, I, I, I tried to mention it, but I certainly didn't make any sort of, you know, important point about it. But there, there is question about, you know, when and where is all of this stuff happening? You know, are they still in the room? Are they talking while they're traveling on the way? Is some of it happening while they're actually in the Mount of Olives, whatever? Yeah, we don't know. But at this point, it does feel like, yeah, we, we walked through the synoptics and we kind of got a little bit ahead of John, and now we're moving a little bit backward in John to say, yeah, so anyway, you know, before they actually went out for the Mount of Olives, they had this big conversation, right? <laughs> but yeah, there's a, there's a little confusion there. Okay. And yeah. That's a good image, though. Anything else? No, that's it. Okay. Well, let's keep going, because... Yeah, it's getting good. Uh, John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, Samuel, this should remind you of a conversation you and I had in the last (laughs) episode or two, right? What do you mean, a new commandment? What do you mean, adding to Torah? So let's go back. We'll talk about it again a little more. Samuel, why don't you read these? Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Okay, I don't know. Seems fairly clear. Okay, Deuteronomy 12.32 is another one. Samuel, read that. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. Yeah, again. Boy, doesn't that seem clear? So what do we do with this? Here's the thing that is, you know, I mean, it, it, it is difficult because we're looking at the text and we're trying to make sense of it, we don't want to just make things up and just, you know, rationalize or justify things just any old way we can. And at the same time, we don't want to be so literal that we miss the actual truth and reality of what's going on, okay? So, first, let's just say this. Samuel, if you go back to the Torah and you're looking for what God says about a thing, anything, is the Torah completely exhaustive? Does it cover every possible thing that any human could ever face in life in detail? Nope. No, of course not. Now, you could, though. What if I stated it a different way? Do the principles contained within Torah cover every possible thing that a man may face. I think so, yeah. Yeah, it does. But the detail isn't there. The principles are there. And you know, if you go back to Torah, you'll see, well, sometimes things in there, they're they're outright commands. And that's it. It's just do this or don't do that. Sometimes you see commands and, and they are like... Either there's an included example or the, the whole command is sort of wrapped up inside an example, something like that. So that happens. Uh, sometimes um, you don't even get to see a thing that 
that actually feels like an outright statement or command from God, you, you only get the example. And from that, we derive the command or, you know, things like that. And then, of course, there's narrative and there's poetry and there's all these different things. So we, we have to look at Torah as much more of a set of principles than a strict set of rules. It's intended to be meditated on. And it's intended that we would actually derive meaning from it. And the reason this can be difficult, I think especially for us, like in America or whatever, you know, a Western mindset mindset is very logical. And we've talked about this before. We like to have lists and bullet points and, you know, just lay it out for me. Here it is. And our laws are in text and we don't have to wonder what they mean. In fact, if we're going to have an argument, we go back to the text, you know, and all that. But it's a, it's a very Eastern mindset versus Western mindset. America, Europe, whatever, it's more more Western. Eastern is, no, uh, we're telling you a thing, and we want you to actually meditate and think about it. We're not giving you all the detailed answer. It was always expected that humans would work together to further clarify the intent and meaning of Torah. And that probably sounds weird to people. What are you saying? Can't can't humans mess it up? Sure, they can. But God actually ordained within Israel the judicial bodies for the purpose of judging life circumstances and applying Torah to them. That's where all of this so-called addition that the Jews have done across time, that's where it comes from. God meant for them to do that. Well, gee, doesn't that open the door for error? Yeah, it does. But I don't know what to tell you. That's the way it was intended. It's not my fault. God did that. And so in a similar way, we, as Gentiles who don't have a covenant obligation to the law, we still need to look into the law to understand justice and mercy and humility and forgiveness and charity and all of those things. So John himself, you know, he writes a similar thing in his letters, and we're not going to read them all, but you could go, if you looked at like 1 John chapter 2, it's around like verses 7 and 8, or 1 John chapter 3 around verse 11, or 2 John verses 5 and 6, whatever, John actually speaks of a new command, but he says that it isn't really a new command. It's an old command, one that they've heard from the beginning, this whole idea of loving one another. And so what we would do, we've talked about this before, Samuel, Leviticus 19, 18. You remember what that's about? Is it loving your neighbor as yourself? Exactly. Yeah, it's an old command, but it is also a new command. And and all we're saying is that it goes further, or maybe we have a deeper understanding of it, or whatever. Well, it's because we have the greater example of Jesus actually living it out. And and just as a side note, John sees perfect love toward God and perfect love toward man as keeping the commandments. And we're just going to say he's not wrong. Now, again, how we relate to it is always the interesting part of the story, 
But it's important that we understand the value of the Torah and the commandments. He's not wrong about that. And interesting side note, Samuel, I can't remember if we've ever talked about this before. There are some stories that relate that in John's final years, this is, you know, John that wrote all this stuff, John became almost unrelatable. I mean, his disciples, they actually got irritated at him. His only response to almost anything and everything was, children, we just need to love one another. And it almost didn't matter what they were talking about. You know, I mean, I'm going to make up a stupid, crazy example. This guy's squeezing the toothpaste wrong. What do I do, John? And he's like, children, just love one another. You know what I'm saying? Now, you can you could probably imagine when you talk to a person and the only thing that ever comes out of their mouth is love one another. Okay, that could get old. And it could get old pretty quick. But from John's perspective, it was the important thing. So... Another way to look at this is like, so so this new command, I mean, if John is writing Jesus' words and he's saying, a new command I give to you, well, in a sense, the new command isn't the love one another part. I mean, we know that Leviticus 9.18, etc. That's an old command. But it does seem to suggest a narrower focus than Leviticus 19.18. Leviticus 19.18, throughout Judaism, has had a kind of a universal application. Love your neighbor, believe it or not, and I know there's a lot of Jewish history that would fly in the face of this, but if we're just talking about, you know, when they really were trying to understand God's perspective, what did they say? Well, it referred to all humanity, all mankind, okay? Love your neighbor, applied to all mankind. This particular little bit that we see from Jesus seems to actually be, I don't know, maybe a little more special or unique or or uh, specific or something like that. It's toward the brethren or for the brethren. And this this new part that he is adding is just as I have loved you. It's like, so if we're looking for, well, what's the new the new command part? It's the yeah, love one another like you always have, except do it just as I have loved you. That's the new part. So they now had a better example, a more true example. He had lived in their midst for three years. And think about it. What did he just do, Samuel? He had just washed their feet. That was a big deal. And not only that, they don't know this quite yet, but he's about to go to the cross. This you know, love one another just as I have loved you includes those things as well as a ton of other stuff. So it's a really, really big deal. Now, all people, supposedly, all people will recognize Jesus's disciples not for how they, you know, in a plain old ordinary sense, love one another. Man, it's like my lips aren't working today. My tongue not in the plain old sense of how they will ordinarily love one another, the same way that we should be loving all of mankind, but for something even a bit more, how they love one another as imitating the way Jesus had loved them. Which, I mean, come on, just think of the last two examples, washing their feet and going to the cross. Christianity is a high, high calling. It's not for the faint of heart. It's not a crutch. It's not some form of 
copium, if I can borrow that modern term, right? <laughs> it's it's a big deal. So this this you know new command in, in the context of you shall not add, you shall not add or take away. You know, I I don't think we should see it as Jesus doing that at all. I think it's him providing a deeper and better understanding, very similar to the way he did on the Sermon on the Mount or, or something like that. And it's a great example for us because that's how we are supposed to be meditating and diving into uh, the law, etc., for our own sakes. So anyway, well, that was a lot. What do you got on that, Samuel? <laughs> I actually do have something this time. All um, right. And I think we talked about it a week or two ago when this concept of adding or taking away when uh, we were talking about this new aspect that Jesus was talking about doing the Passover in remembrance of me. I think I made the statement and we linked an article about within traditional rabbinic Judaism, it wasn't uncommon for there to be additional details in terms of things that the people of God are encouraged to do or practice with the goal of if it is helping aim you towards fulfilling the commandments in a better way. Like adding to the Torah in that sense is a useful thing. Like that's, that's how the whole extra biblical texts like the Talmud and the Midrash that was their whole purpose was to include more details, more context for us to be able, us as in people of God, Israel, to fulfill the commandments. And the Torah actually, in my opinion, showcases this in the text itself. If we go back to Genesis 1 through 3, like particularly Genesis 2 and 3, when God is telling humanity to, like, you know, you can eat from any tree or fruit of the garden, but you you cannot eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or you will die. And then in chapter 3, whenever you have this interaction between the serpent and the woman, and the serpent says, like, didn't God say that, you know, you're not supposed to eat of this tree? And the woman says, like, we're not supposed to eat of it, nor are we supposed to touch the fruit of the tree. Right. And like we, we ask ourselves within rabbinic thought, it's like, wait, God didn't say anything about touching it. He just said about eating it. And so within rabbinic thought, it's like they th- treat it as like Adam and Eve conversing over this commandment to not eat of the fruit and them putting a fence around Tor to go one step further to be like, if we're not supposed to eat of it, we shouldn't even be getting close to it in proximity. We shouldn't even be giving ourselves the temptation by holding it in our hands, being in right. proximity to it, yeah. uh, to give us every opportunity and chance of success as possible. Yeah. So in the same way, like Jesus here is saying, if the goal of the commandment is to love one another, love your brethren, the detail that you are that I am adding that is going to help you perform that love successfully is this yeah. self-sacrifice, this uh, humbling of yourself, giving up your life and in so to speak for the benefit of lifting others up. Yeah, um, yeah. That's in my opinion. That is what Jesus is doing. Although, and, and 
even even though I say that, like I, I now I have a question with this detail that I brought, <laughs> which is weird. Like um, God is unchanging, whether it's God in the Old Testament versus God being represented in Jesus here in the Gospels, and so I guess I'm wondering. Shouldn't we see that detail of of God humbling himself, lowering himself uh, in order to lift others up? That has to be present in the Torah as well. It's not as if that detail of God's character was somehow absent in Genesis through Malachi, and now it's all of a sudden showing its head for the first time. Like, Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm just trying to think of times in the Torah where that was present as well. Yeah. Well, and I think what you have to do is say, wait a second, Jesus is the physical manifestation of Torah. So whatever you think it is you see in Jesus, yeah, it's in there. Mm. Right? I mean, that's like bold black and white statement number one. So there's that. Uh, and yeah, uh, okay, you know me, Samuel, I am not the guy who unprepared can remember Bible verses. I am just not that guy. I've never been that guy. But yes, this I this much I know, of course we see God demonstrating this in different ways throughout the Torah. And that might be a, I don't know, that might be a neat thing. So maybe someday we do a, a special episode where, you know, we, we do a topic like that rather than walking through the scriptures as we normally do. Maybe we do something like that. But uh, that won't be today because I'm not the guy who could do it. But I did want to also mention, uh, and, and please don't hold me to this because I may be remembering correctly or I may not, but you talked about the idea of Eve and don't touch it, sounded like an addition or whatever. If I remember correctly, Eve wasn't around to hear God say that. And so the tradition says that it was Adam mm-hmm. that had conveyed that to Eve, and so the Jews credit Adam with, I think the phrase is, putting a fence around Torah, saying, hey, you're not supposed to eat it, so here's what we're going to do. We're just going to build a little fence around that area so that we don't even get close, and the fence is, hey, you know what, don't even touch it. <laughs> and I mm-hmm. just, I think that's such a cool image, you know, very practical. Yeah. But yeah, great, great one, Samuel. You're on fire again. <laughs> Man, we're going to have to buy new equipment. You keep melting it. It's because of the red hair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anything else? No. All right. I think we can actually do this next little bit. So we're going to do one more. Uh, this is John chapter 13, verses 36 to 38. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Okay, now all of a sudden you're probably going, Hey, didn't we just talk about that? Yeah, uh, we did. And it was difficult deciding whether to try to include that over there or over here. I decided to leave it separate just because of the the flow and the context, whatever. But it's totally uh, a a repeat, at least the denial part. So 
It, I don't know. It was just a little different here. So I thought for flow, we'd leave it. But, but, but let's get back to the real question of this part. Where are you going? It's a great question. Now, earlier, Jesus said, where I am going, you cannot come. Okay, it's just a few verses ago, verse 33, right? And in that instance, you know, you might envision something like, well, I mean, Jesus is, you know, he's going into God's throne room. Or, or uh, maybe if you think of the book of Hebrews, Jesus is going to the heavenly tabernacle, something of that nature. And, and I don't know, we, we might think of that as someplace uh, that's, that it's even considered special in heaven or in the heavenlies, right? Places that, I don't know, we may never actually see. You know, the story is not us ending up in heaven with God. The story is us ending up on a new earth here and God dwelling with us here. And so I bet you there's a whole bunch of heaven that we will never see or know about, even in through the end of the story. So maybe you imagine Jesus is going somewhere that they'll, they cannot go. Uh, but, but here, even though he spoke that way earlier, it's, it's like Jesus is turning the words a bit here, effectively kind of changing the, stu- the subject. And what's even more interesting is that Peter seems to be of the same mindset. So I don't know if it's Jesus changing to match where Peter is in his own brain or Peter's just following along with what Jesus is saying. I don't really know. But anyway, Jesus speaks of Peter following him, not now, but afterward. And so in the context right here, it appears that both Peter and Jesus seem to be referring specifically to death and martyrdom. And so you go back up to verse 33, and you say, well, he can't... Either... He was, you know, being, he needed to bring some more explanation and detail here, and he didn't really mean what he said above, or he really was talking about something slightly different uh, above. I happen to think when he said it earlier, he totally meant exactly what he said, and he was referring to something that Peter will never actually be a part of. And here he's bringing it back down to reality, as in like Peter's reality, what he will indeed see and experience or whatever. And so it is going to include his death and his martyrdom. Now, as we've seen before, you know, Peter's obviously declaring his, his readiness and his willingness to follow Jesus even unto death. Now, you could, you could look at what happens to Peter and you could say, hey, you know, he was just a weak coward of a man. Well, maybe. Maybe that's how it worked out. Or, I don't know, maybe Peter actually received a little unwanted help, if we could call it that, from the Spirit in those times. You know, something something actually inside him urging him, hey, just say you don't know him. There's a whole bunch more story that yet needs to be worked out, so just say you don't know him. Right? Maybe it was more like that. Maybe he wasn't a weak coward. I don't know. Maybe some something that you can make up in your head in between. We don't really know what went on in Peter. We just know how the story worked out. Either way, Peter, he's given the same prediction here as we talked about before. You're going to deny me three times. But it isn't said here. It isn't stated explicitly here. And I would just like to go back and say, but also remember when he talked about it in the synoptics, it included that little bit of encouragement or hope 
when you have turned again. That's not stated here, but we know that in Peter's story, his denial isn't the end of the story. And that's just, I don't know, I just think it's important to remember that. So anyway, there's that little bit, and that ends chapter 13 of John. So when we start next podcast, we're going to be moving on to chapter 14. So maybe there's some some good break there. Us not doing a cliffhanger. I'm not sure what to do about that. We haven't had one of those in a while. Yeah. <laughs> what? Did, oh, I'm sorry. I saw something dripping. It must have been sarcasm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a good stopping point. Yeah. Anything about that section, Samuel? No. Okay. No, I mean, we, we've talked about it in previous weeks. I just, yeah. I think we should uh, affirm Peter's readiness and willingness as real and genuine and we should tr- potentially treat his denial as a natural human reaction in a form of you know th- the weakness that sin and death have on our our lives of the fear of death and he got caught up in the moment and you know it it takes a special person to be one of those zealot kind of followers that is just piously willing to hand over your life in in death. Um, so I don't know. I, I I don't struggle with Peter's failure in this in the scriptures as much as maybe some do. Um, yeah. I try to give him more grace with being human, just like you and I and everyone else is. Yeah. You know, and uh, I don't know, people hear things different ways, whatever. Because we're in the middle of this, but wait a second, where this is like that last meal and they're heading out to the Mount of Olives. I mean, this is like the really, really climactic part of the story. Some of this that we're going to go through, and I mean, I can't help it. It's going to take us a number of podcasts to get through a number of chapters of John, you know, this, it may feel like, oh, I really felt like we were, you know, moving towards something really important and big, and now it feels slightly more uh, common, you know, ordinary, uh, not not big and exciting. I get that, but it is Jesus's farewell discourse, and so hang in there. I think we are going to find some really good and interesting things, but it is going to feel like a pretty big break from the big exciting part of the story. Hmm. But anyway, there you go. Until next time. Okie dokie. Thank you for listening to the Okie dokie Most podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about the podcast at www.okidokimos.com. And if you'd like to get hold of us, please send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com Until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon. Mm -hmm.